the housing crisis, isn't it funny, strange that governments seem to always have money for wars, for COVID disasters, not for, not for their own homeless people? I consider it a great disaster. In 2016, there were 116,000 homeless people in Australia. Mm. In 2020, there was 290,000 homeless people in Australia. Charity starts at home. No one in their right mind wants to be homeless. And I think there's a really important point here, and that is that charity starts at home. Mm. I appreciate the fact that you know our government can be doing a lot more on this issue. I think that as us as individuals can be doing a lot more as well. Mm. You know, when was the last time that you gave to a charity that was supporting homeless people? Yeah, something to uh, stop and think about. I think that one of the challenges of a of a uh, of a semi socialist system is that it robs us of the opportunity for. It doesn't rob us of the opportunity. It reduces. Our, our felt need to be a part of charities. Mm. And also, like, then, you know, if, if needs aren't met in that area, then we have someone to blame. Yeah. Which yes. then, you yes. know, it always puts us in the morally, you know, superior position, even though we're not doing anything. Interesting thought. And that's, I, I feel thought. like that's what we have a lot of in Australia, is we have so, lots of people who complain. Yes, and we... Point the finger at the government and say you should do something about it. Yeah, okay, and that's absolutely there should. Um, but let's take the opportunity to do something mm, ourselves. 100%. Okay, what else we got here? More text messages. Uh, we do. Okay, about the pastor, I am sure that 99% of the people who heard the story must be scratching their heads to the utter stupidity of what happened to him. It only leaves the option that the event was premeditated, action and reaction to the desired effect. All of us would have reacted as the pastor did. Think about it. Gender ideology, fired for disagreeing, reported to anti-terrorism watchdog, the murder of freedom of speech, free speech. What it really is is a terrorist attack against Christians. Mm. I wouldn't even. I, I'd go further than that. I'd say this is a terrorist attack against common sense or opinion. Terrorist attack. Yes, like terrorist attack against just having an opinion. Because I, you are no longer allowed to have an opinion. I know plenty of people who aren't religious. You know, I look at a lot of my family yes. who would hold this opinion. Yes. If there were a teacher at this school would say, you know, even not a pastor, just a teacher, the, like, I'm like, oh, you know, I, I don't want to call on it. I don't know. I'll tell you I what have, terrifies I, me. I have an immediate fr- family member who is a teacher who agrees with this person. I'll I tell you what terrifies me is that there are so many teachers who teach this gender ideology and believe it, and then there are so many other teachers who say nothing because they're too afraid to say anything. Mm. What's that going to do to the next generation? Mm. I mean, how badly are we messing up the next next generation where we're teaching them not to believe empirical science? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yikes. You know. And this is the thing that Christians get accused of being bad for. Like, we get a, a bad rap, even though I've been to, you know, growing up I went to multiple Christian schools that all taught empirical science but yeah oh, that's crazy dude yeah you get this whole thing of uh science versus ideology which has been a great debate that sort of raged through my era and because i was a christian they're like well you follow ideology or faith rather than science wow hasn't that turned on its head mm. you know when it comes to historical science yes i take the path of the least amount of faith required mm. For historical science, it requires a lot more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in creation. Mm. For 
uh, empirical science. Nobody argues with empirical science. Empirical science is empirical science. Because it's testable, you repeatable, know, it's repeatable, follows the laws of thermodynamics. testable, like, repeatable. It, it's there. You don't... No, no yeah. one argues with you, that. You can't, like, you know, do a science experiment and then say, oh, no, this is incorrect. Or, like, obviously, there are ways that it can be incorrect. But you can't have the evidence before your eyes and But now we've it. got... That's right. And now we've got a war on... The evidence that is before our eyes. Yeah, wow. You know, when you've got you've got gender ideology te- teaching us that empirical biology is you can't believe, mm. and then you've got uh, critical race theory telling us that mathematics you can't believe either because well that's racist. Yeah. Where is maths? Where maths is our world is, going? Uh, is is stereotyping people? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Let's go to our Bible study and let's find some sanity in our world. Please, let's yes. find some sanity in our world. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, mm-hmm. verse 29 to 31. Let's start here. And somebody just uh, texted through with a bunch of uh, emojis to go with it, uh, just stating that Jesus is coming. Amen. You know, and when you see a world tell. like this... <laughs> You know, 10 years ago, could we have ever predicted where we are right now? No. 10 years ago, I was in school. Yes. And it j- no. 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 Not even. Like, like to see to think of that happening in the school that I went to. You would have been laughed to scorn. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Jesus is coming. That's all. Oh, that, that's, that's what this says. When you see insanity taking over the world, you know the Lord is returning. Okay, uh, where are we going? Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 29 to 31. Let's read this. Deuteronomy chapter 1, 29 to 31. The Bible says, But I said to you, don't be shocked or afraid of them. The Lord your God is going ahead of you. He will fight for you, just as you saw him do in Egypt. And he saw... Sorry, and you saw how the Lord your God cared for you all along the way as you traveled through the wilderness, just as a father cares for his children. Now he has brought you to this place. Okay, so we have this passage here where God is really, uh, well, Moses is, is really talking to God's people about God's care for them mm. and how much God loves them. Mm. And how much God is looking after them, which, you know, we've been looking, we've been delving into this question of, Okay, why did they why did they go into captivity? And what changed that they came out of captivity? And mm-hmm. so if you look at the model that you have in the book of Judges, mm-hmm. they go into captivity when they reject God. They mm-hmm. come out of ta- captivity when they return to God. That's a very simple and easy to understand equation because that follows natural law. When we walk away from God, we have cut ourselves off from his protection. He is no longer there able to protect us, and so we're going to end up in trouble. When we return to God, the opposite takes place, and we are now able to come back under God's protection, and the enemies of God uh, of God's people will be driven away. And so you see that you know um, repeated and repeated and repeated through the Book of Judges, and it's easy to understand. This one's different. Here we understand why they went into captivity. There were political reasons, there were economic reasons, mm. but above all, there was the age-old reason for of the fact that they went into idolatry and when they went into idolatry, God was no longer able to protect them. They had mm. removed themselves from God's protecting power. Mm. So that's easy to understand. But when they came out of Egypt, it wasn't because they had returned to God. Yeah, well, 
Because Moses goes back there and is like, okay, we're going to go out into the desert to worship Yahweh. And, and they're like, who is that? Mm. They had forgotten who God was. Now, I think it's also um, important to note at this particular time that they had largely forgotten God. I'm going to come back and talk about it in a moment. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. So something else that we looked at yesterday was where the passage where the Bible says that uh, they would be in captivity for 400 years and uh, that the time of the Amorites or the Canaanites had not been fulfilled. Mm. Okay, so let's look at the ancient world for a moment and let's consider what's going on in the ancient world. We often look at the ancient world and go, well, you know, the only people who worshipped God were Abraham and his descendants. Yeah. And that's just not so. Yeah. We completely underestimate the how widespread the worship of God was. Mm. So let's talk about this for a moment because it's an important part of history that we need to cover. When the flood comes to an end and you've got Noah and his sons who go out of the ark, they are all worshippers of God. Yeah. The first great rebellion begins at Babylon with Nimrod. Mm-hmm. And when you know the languages are confused, the tower is destroyed, then you've got um, you've got this whole situation where a lot of people would have returned back to God again. Mm. And when you look at the history of the world, you find that the knowledge of God and the worship of God travelled and with the, with with the various people that spread from there, and was found in many many different parts of the world. And so. You know, for instance, the story of the flood, you find it globally in every part of the world. Uh, The story of substitutionary death and the blood sacrifice, you find it globally in every part of the world. It traveled everywhere from there. The knowledge of God is what you find. If you go to the the ancient Chinese and you look at the first hieroglyphs that they invented. So when the Chinese invented writing, and this is the oldest continuous civilization on the planet, and so you've got the Chinese... They've got this very, very ancient alphabet that goes back to 250 years before the time of Moses. Mm. And encoded within that alphabet is the entire gospel story. Yeah, wow. You've got the creation of Adam and Eve. You've got the flood. You've got uh, the, the sacrifice. You've got the, you know, the, the, the lamb who is the king who, uh, you know, we take our knife to the lamb who is the king and that makes us righteous. You know, we've got all of these kinds of concepts that are encoded within the ancient Chinese hieroglyphs. Yeah. And so this is the gospel story there. Then you've got Melchizedek. Well, he wasn't a descendant of Abraham. He's the real keyhole in the Bible to that, you know, the ancient world and people worshipping God outside of yes. outside of Abraham and his family. Absolutely. He's high priest. Yeah. He's high priest, and, and he, he has nothing to do with the family of Abraham. And he comes from Salem. Yes. Which is, you know, peace. Of course, we know that it would... It Later became Jeru- Jerusalem. Salem. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And so then uh, you come down to the time of Moses, and you've got Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God. Balaam gave one of the greatest messianic prophecies of all time. Mm. He lives in Mesopotamia. Yeah, wow. You know, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away, probably... A couple of thousand kilometers away. I don't know how far that would have he would have had to travel around the around the fertile crescent to get down uh, to Midian to be able to try and curse Israel, where God just you know uses him to bless Israel. Mm. You've got then Moses, who when he flees from Egypt, 
he marries Zipporah, who is an Ethiopian girl, who is the daughter of Jethro, who is a priest of the Most High God. Yeah, wow. You know, so here you've got another priest, um, once again, outside of Israel. And so when you've got all of this happening, you have um, you have this whole situation going on where it sort of makes you realize that the knowledge of God and the worship of God was far more widespread than what we give it credit for mm. in the time. of. We, we just get these little snippets. But while, yes, idolatry was rampant and it was running throughout the world and it was starting to take over the world, it hadn't fully taken over the world. Mm. But God could see what the future was and which is why he'd called Abraham out and he had set Abraham up to, you know, to form a nation at the crossroads of 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 three continents so mm. that there would be a continuous light amongst everybody right through the world. As well as also using that lineage to bring forth Christ. Yes. Like that was, yeah, the, the ultimate purpose. Absolutely. Mm. And so when you talk about the Amorites and the Canaanites, the implication is that these were people who lived in the land of Canaan. Mm. Their probation had not closed and God was not about to dispossess them of their land. Okay, why and when are people dispossessed of their land? They're dispossessed of their land. You find you know, Israel or Judah, they are dispossessed of their land when they go into idolatry for multiple generations. Mm. And so the implication here is that amongst the Canaanites and the Amorites, there were many, many people who were servants of God. Mm. And Melchizedek was probably a Canaanite or an Amorite. We don't know. Mm. We, we we simply don't. But he was he was native to that particular region. Yeah, that's the indica- in that's the indication that we have. And so, you know, when you look at that whole situation, you've got okay, the knowledge of God wasn't as almost disappeared as what we might think it was. And so when we come to the Israelites who are in captivity, there is very good indication that there were some there who were still praying for deliverance. Mm. I think that's really important for us to note and that God does answer prayer. I think there's another important point that comes in here as well, and I'm having a bit of a, a, a rave on here and we do need to get back to our Bible study. That's good, Lyle. Uh, there's another important point here as well, and that is that God was intervening at this point not so much well, not because Israel had returned to him, but because if he didn't, all would be lost. Yes. There was a flicker, and that was all that was left. Mm. And now was the time that he had to intervene, else that flicker would go out mm. altogether, and the promises that he made to Abraham would be meaningless. And for those who knew those promises, that would see, that would demonstrate that God was not a covenant-keeping God. And, of course, he is a covenant-keeping God. Mm. All right, next verse, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Let's go there. No, that's a really, really good point. Like, the, the, like God often makes promises and prophecies that are conditional. Yes. Um, but the, the prophecy of, you know, Christ coming was not a conditional prophecy. It wasn't a conditional promise. And that it came through the lineage of Abraham as well. He had already, like, made that promise to Abraham because of Abraham's faithfulness. Like, it's like, okay, Abraham was, you know, 
uh, faithful and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That had happened. That had already been set in motion. Like, there wasn't any stipulation that was made that, like, oh, and, you know, your sons and your daughters are required to be faithful as you were and whatnot. Of course, that was the hope. But ultimately, like, you know, God had made a promise. It had needed to happen. He's going to work through these people through thick and thin, and that's definitely what we see through the history of Israel. And it's and the reality is, is that, yeah, at that time and at many times after that too, you know, particularly during the period of Daniel, it's the, the people following God come to an extremely low number. In fact, like you could say Satan almost won. But, you know, yeah, God is just always working. All right, what passage do we have here? Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, the Bible says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Okay, so what's the lesson that you and I can learn out of this? So we look at this whole situation where Israel is weak, they are failing, they are, you know, at the at the bottom of the gutter, so, so to speak, there is just a flicker of faith there, you know, almost uh, if that the pilot light is still on but nothing else, mm. and... Uh, What's the lesson that we get to learn from this? How can we apply to this this to our lives? Mm. Well, the, the word Egypt, like, is used, you know, it's a literal place in the Bible, but it's also used as a symbol of the world and worldliness, yes. as it's yes. referred to, you know, when we read in the Bible, do not be conformed to the world. This idea of, you know, uh, secularism, basically uh, the, the state of living without God. That's yes. what Egypt is. And I feel as though like what this is saying, you know, calling Israel out of Egypt and how that applies to us is that, you know, no matter where we are on our journey, whether it's the world, you know, which is Egypt, whether it's even further like Babylon being in complete another spiritual darkness, God is always calling us out to something better. I feel like, you know, I can look at my own life and just see, we're talking about education before and whatnot. I was really blessed to grow up with a good Christian education. Uh, you know, a particularly shout out to my high school, Hunter Christian School. The place was like, you know, it's, it was so epic. Like I, going to that school gave me a really good picture of what Christianity actually was and, and what it could look like in my life. Now, at the time, I wasn't interested in it because I was off racing motorbikes. But, you know, once Christianity came into my life when I was 17, 18 years old, once God called me, you know, to be a Christian, like I could recognize in my life, he had always been calling me. He'd always been blessing me and preparing me to become a follower of him. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Let's get back to our Bible study. Let's read Psalms chapter 103, verse Ooh. 13 and 14. Love it if you guys can come up with an answer for this one. See if you can figure out which one it is. Oh, this is just hurting my brain. Okay, Psalms 103, which verse? 13 and 14. Bible says in verse 13 and 14, The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. But he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell me. Yes. How do you feel about that passage right there? Being dust? No. That God remembers that we're only dust. Ooh. Yeah, well. What, is, what, is, what does that say? What does that speak to you? What does that say to your soul? He, like as it says, he uses the word compassionate. He is yes. compassionate to our situation. Yes. Like he understands. Um, you know, it's, it's always that, that, that 
Okay, so yeah, yesterday I talked about you in our intro section how I arrived to work late because there was a bit of a scheduling mishap mm-hmm. and I, I got to work late. And, um, you know, I'm fully expecting as I'm walking in, like, to get grilled by my manager and I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, this is going to really be terrible. But she was just so compassionate. Like, she was just, like, fully understanding, like, oh, I've been late plenty of times. Like, it's all good. Don't freak out. And that meant that I was just immediately on the ball. Like, as soon as I got in there, just got everything done I needed to do, worked everything out, like, you know, went above and beyond in my work, and it was good. But it meant, yeah, because I received compassion, like, there was that genuine, like, that that improved, even though, like, I was the one in the wrong. So and from I a felt guilty. From a management perspective, yeah. she was getting the most out of her employee. Yes. That, that Yes. She was getting the most out of me. She was helping me be the best I could be because she was compassionate to my situation. Even though, like, for her, yeah, sure, she's she's been through that as well, probably. But, you know, she didn't also show up late that day. She was on time. I'm the one in the wrong, yet she was compassionate to my situation. I see this so much parallel here where God, he He made us. Like, he's the one who made us from dust. And even though he's perfect, he understands where we are, who we are, and where we come from, which is amazing. Absolutely. That just nails it right there. Um, it illustrates that God is aware of, of our hopelessness. Mm. You know, when it, when it says here in Hosea, the passage reading, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him and called my son out of Egypt. Mm. God understands our weakness. Mm. He understands our hopelessness. He understands the reality that we are dust. He understands our brokenness. Mm. And he calls us in the midst of all that. Yeah, well. And he extends his grace to us in the midst of all that and says, look, I get it. I know how weak you are. I know where you are right now. Here is my grace. I want to change your life. Mm. And you were sharing some of your testimony when we finished up about what <laughs> yeah. God did in your life and how God changed your life. And, mm. you know, this is what I see happening over and over again in the Bible is that God looks at Israel and, okay, they haven't turned back to him as they often do, you know, whenever they get in trouble in the book of Judges. Mm. But he has compassion on them. Yeah. He loves them, and there is still hope there, and mm. God works where there is still hope. With the Egyptians and those that died in the Red Sea, their probation was closed. And the reason that their probation was closed was not because God got angry with them and just you know, shut that tap off, closed that door. Mm. No, it was because they had removed themselves from God so far they had committed the unpardonable sin. I mean, seriously, when you get ten plagues... And then you still raise an army and chase after the Israelites. Mm. You know you've committed the unpardonable sin. Yeah. You've just you've just completely cut yourself. When your own son has died, when the death of your own son, your firstborn son, is not enough to stop you from going after the Israelites, mm. that is a you know very clear evidence that. You've committed the unpardonable sin. And unfortunately, when we look at the history of the Bible, it's Israel who goes on to do the same thing themselves. Yes. Which is which is sad. And how did they do it? Well, they, they killed the Son of God. And furthermore, they didn't just kill the Son of God, but then rejected him. Like, they rejected him after his death. You know, we could, we could, there's a whole Bible study there, you know. Uh, and the Bible says that when we sin, we do the same thing. Yeah. We crucify the Son of God afresh. Mm. Mm. 
all over again. And but even in that, like even like because that passage is then followed up by just the amazing mercy that God has on us and the ability that he still gives us to come back to him. This is the thing, like, yeah, yeah, you know, this is probably a definition that many of you have heard before, but yeah, the unpardonable sin, and, and which is the only sin that we can be lost from, by the way, that's the one that does it. For, for everyone who is lost, it's because they commit the unpardonable sin. And what is that? Not coming back to God. That's it's right. that you fall and you don't come back. Yes. And it's, ah, oh, and it's, it's, tragic it is because god understands but that's probably the one thing that god can't understand he's like look i've given you everything i've done everything i could possibly do like even the, the even i in your situation and many people in your situation would come have and would come back to me but you won't and that's just like that's that is when you're at the place where god closes probation that it ends is when you go like god understands our weaknesses mm-hmm. but when we be more than weak Yes. When we just reject. When when we we become more than weak, we become hardened. And it's oh, like God would love us to just be weak because then he could work in our lives. He could he could work in us and we'd come back to him. But when we become hardened to sin and we won't come back anymore, that's that's it. And that's our decision. So, oh, heavy stuff here this morning. It is indeed. All right, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Let's read this passage right here, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. We've spent a fair bit of time on this, and I think rightfully so. I think there's some really good questions that need to be answered here and to be understood. So Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7. The Bible says, Therefore say to the people Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will... Redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the oppression in Egypt. Okay, so in these verses, what principle do we see here uh, regarding the role of God towards humans in a covenant relationship? That he frees them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's a key thing to look for in the passage. How many times does the word I pop up? Oh, a ton. Over and over and over again. Mm. You know, I am the Lord. I will bring you out of the land of Egypt. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you for my people. I will mm. be your God. I am the Lord your God. Yeah. You know, this is this is the great thing about the covenant that we need to remember when we're talking about the covenant that God has made with human beings is that it's not God sitting back and saying, Well, you need to do this, this and this and this and this. Yeah, wow. And when you're good enough, it'll be sorted. No. God says, I'll do it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Question of the day. Why did God try to kill Moses? Okay, so let's read what the Bible says. And there's just three verses on this, so the Bible says has very little to say on it. So if we step too far out of what the Bible says, we end up in the area of speculation. And speculation is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be fun, but it can also be dangerous. We need to be to make sure that we don't say more than what the Bible says. Yes. Okay, so on the way to Egypt, this is uh, Exodus 4, verse 24. On the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, uh, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, Now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Uh, when, when she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him alone. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what we know about the story. Number one, we know that God was about to kill Moses. Mm-hmm. You know, God's called him to go and let my people go. So he goes along with Zipporah and his son, uh, and he's on his way, and God's about to kill him. So we know that God was about to kill Moses. We know that Moses' son was not circumcised, and we know that Zipporah did this, and we know that when Zipporah did it, then the Lord wasn't going to kill him anymore. That's what we know from the verse. Yes. Um, okay, so then we need to stop and ask the question, why? Mm. Why would God do this? Okay, so there's a couple of things to uh, stop and think about. First of all, why wasn't his son already circumcised? Yeah. Now, maybe because he had, you know, really become a part of a different tribe. He'd become part of the Midianite tribe, uh, married to an Ethiopian who was living in Midian and part of the Midianite tribe. And the Midianites, you know, they didn't practice circumcision. Um, the um, and, and this was probably something to them that was abhorrent. Mm. And I can understand that from Moses' perspective, it would be something that he wouldn't be keen on either. Mm. I wouldn't be keen on that. I'd kind of avoid it and I'd kind of look at the excuse of like, well, you know what, I'm not actually living in Egypt. I'm not actually living with the Israelite people right now. I'm a part of a different tribe. I've sort of been adopted into this tribe and so they don't do this, so I don't need to do this either. But when he's heading back to let God's people, you know, to take God's people out of captivity, God confronts him over this issue. And we know that it's over this issue because when this issue is taken care of, then God leaves. And God confronts him and God, basically what God is saying is, okay, I asked you to do this and you've said yes, but you have been disobedient. And, and Moses might have looked at it and said, well, this is a really small thing, you know. It's just, it's just not a big deal. Why is it a big deal? And often we come to the Bible like that ourselves, you know. Why, why would God make a big deal over a day or something like that, you know. And we say something is just not a big deal, but God actually is very specific about what he asked people to do. It's like how the, the, the implication is how are you going to call God's people to come back to the service of God when you don't serve God? Mm. That's what God's saying. And the confronting thing about the story is that Moses is not the one who solves this problem. It's his wife who steps in. It was not her job. It was not her responsibility. It was not what she was required to do. It was Moses as the priest and as the father of the household. He was required to to perform this distasteful task. And she has to step in and uh, perform the circumcision of their son. And so I think that... Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.